I'm excited for this, uh, this sermon series that Willie just uh, told you about that we're going to be spending the summer uh, seeking wisdom from the book of Proverbs. You know, uh, life comes at us with this unrelenting and overwhelming number of decisions that we have to make. Probably every day you, you have to make a hundred decisions, big or small, where you're asking yourself, what is the, what is the right thing to do here? What's the, what's the right thing for me to do? What's the right step for me to take? It happens our, in our relational world, right? You wonder, how do I re-engage with this person who I've had conflict with? How do I forgive? How do I, how do I manage my anger? when it feels like it's getting out of control, either at a friend or a child or a, or, or a, uh, or a spouse, right? We have financial decisions. How, how do I get a job where I can earn enough money to provide for my needs? How much do I really need? How much should I, should I save? How much should I spend? What should I live on? We face decisions about our own emotional world, right? Should we give in to temptation? Should we give in and lose our anger? Should we give in to our temptation to hit the snooze button a few extra times and sleep in. We face hundreds and hundreds of decisions, big and small, every day. And we really want to believe that our decisions matter, right? That somehow, little by little, the decisions we make shape the person we are, they shape the kind of friend we are, the kind of coworker we are, that our decisions matter in our own lives and in those of our neighbors. And yet increasingly, I think we feel lost in thinking through how do we make these decisions, there's a recurring column in the, uh, the New York Times Magazine. Up till recently, it was uh, done by one of my favorite authors, a guy named Chuck Klosterman, who went from being a rock and roll critic, imagine this, who was a rock and roll critic, and then he started writing this column called The Ethicist, where people write in with ethical problems and ask for his guidance or his help. I don't know if you're looking for help, if you would write to a rock and roll critic, but here he is. He's available to help you. And he would get just the most fascinating questions. People wrestling with these hundreds of questions that they deal with would, in need of help, write to him as kind of a, a postmodern Dear Abby kind of character. I'll give you a couple of them. One, uh, one young woman wrote in, and the ethical issue that she was faced with was this, that she showed up to her local coffee shop, and she was just going to get a regular coffee. The person in front of her ordered a, uh, a pumpkin spice latte. The, the woman at the counter said, oh, actually, we're out of the pumpkin spice, so I can't give you that. Uh, but, I, but I, here's a free drink in place of it. So her question was, when it was my turn, I ordered a pumpkin spice latte too. <laughs> was that ethical? Right? Did I, do, did I do right or did I do wrong? Klosterman wrote briefly, no, you're a liar <laughs> and a low-rent con artist. And you live in a community where pumpkin-flavored beverages are way too popular. Um, which I would agree. Uh, other questions that they got uh, were these. Uh, my dad wants to bring his second wife to mom's funeral. Should I say anything? Uh, should I call Uber and tell them if my driver was high? I'd say yes. Uh, should I have talked to my father about his cross-dressing? Um, I listen to NPR every day, but I've never once given to the funding drive. Have I behaved ethically? And so, uh, here, they, here they are, these people writing in with the myriad of decisions that we have, that we face, writing to somebody, looking for some hope, some way of sorting through these incredible decisions. I think the irony, one of the ironies of our age is that we have more knowledge than ever before. 
right? Uh, there's almost no question that you can be asked, that you can't Google and find the answer pretty quickly, right? So some have called this age the information age. Information is at an all-time high. But we're not necessarily growing at the same pace, and our ability to act on that knowledge uh, in a way that's wise, in a way that's kind, in a way that's good, in a way that's loving, right? We're growing in knowledge, but not necessarily in what the Bible calls wisdom. And so how do we navigate all of these decisions? You know, I find that Christians are often just as lost uh, as anybody else when it comes to these things, right? How do I make these hundreds of decisions? Well, as Christians, we have this general sense that we ought to consult the Bible, right? That when we're faced with decisions and we don't know what to do, we go to the Bible and we ask, what should I do? And the problem with that, uh, there's a lot right in that impulse, right? We should look to God's word to guide us. Uh, But the problem is that there's some things in the Bible that are very, very black and white, right? If you're trying to decide whether or not you should murder your neighbor because his music's too loud, right? You can flip to the Ten Commandments, do not murder, and go, okay, I shouldn't murder. But you're not going to be able to find a chapter and verse in the Bible to go to to figure out whether it's ethical to lie about what coffee drink you wanted or to figure out whether or not uh, how to handle your dad at your mom's funeral and all of those kind of questions. Right? The Bible just leaves all kinds of place, all kinds of gray, where it asks us to live with, with wisdom. And so some Christians, I find, look for an overly black and white, prescriptive way to get through those things, and they end up disappointed when the Bible doesn't handle every question of modern life fully. Others go to a completely subjective experience. So right, if you're dealing with a decision you don't know what to do, people will come and say, well, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know whether or not I should order uh, my coffee or the pumpkin spice latte, But you know what? I felt like God told me that it was okay for me to go ahead and order the pumpkin spice latte. And you go, well, all right, if God told you, I guess I can't, who am I to argue with God? Right, we can overly subjectivize it where we're looking for the spirit to lead us or God to speak to us in every single situation in life. And the scriptures instead in that place call us, yes, the spirit leads and guides, yes, God's word speaks with clarity on some basic issues, but Overall, God asks us to to live our lives in a way that's ordered under his rule, ordered under his word, and where we're seeking his wisdom to live in a way that that loves our neighbors and submits our life to him. And so uh, we come to Proverbs this summer where we're going to be looking at how God leads us in wisdom, how we acquire wisdom, how we live lives that are full of wisdom. Because one of the messages of Proverbs, above all else, is that that desire we have for our choices to matter, for our lives to matter, what we do with them, the Proverbs tell us, yes, your life does matter. The choices you make, the way that you spend the years of this life and the days of this life, they matter. They matter for you. They matter for your family and for your community. And so this morning, we are just going to look at two very basic questions Uh, by way of introduction into Proverbs, which these first seven verses really are an introduction to Proverbs. And the two questions we're going to ask are really simple. What is wisdom, and where do we get it? What is wisdom, and and where do we find it? First, what is wisdom? Starts here in verse 2, where Solomon, the the author of much of Proverbs, is telling us that, that his purpose is that we would know wisdom and instruction. And the word here for wisdom, literally the Hebrew word, means skill, that you would learn the skill of living in God's world. He's saying that living in the world as we've received it, living in the reality of God's creation, is a skill, 
right? The learned ability to live with the grain of God's world and to not be swimming upstream against God's created world, against God's wisdom. That wisdom is uh, fundamentally a skill of applied wisdom into living. You know, one of the things the scriptures tell us is true about the human story, not just in a big picture, but every one of our stories, is that each one of us has said to God, uh, dating back to our first parents and Adam and Eve, all the way down to us on a daily level, that we've said to God in light of his truth, Paul puts it this way in Romans 2, that we've traded God's truth for a lie. That we've said, you know what, I don't need God's wisdom. I don't need God to tell me how to live in his world. I can make my own way that I know what's best, left with my own gut instincts, my own smarts. I can navigate my way through this world. And the voice of wisdom calls to us and says, no. No, there actually is. You have to learn how to live with skill, with the grain of God's world. You know, this, uh, this belief that we don't need to learn how to live, that we don't need to learn how to live in this world, is one that flies in the, in the face of so much in our culture today. I think if you were to do a survey on the street, uh, just go to people, that, you know, the random person on the street and ask, what makes for a good life, right? What makes for a good and fulfilling human life? I think the thing that you would hear uh, more often than anything else is this, that a good and fulfilling human life is that you live a life that's authentic to who you are, right? That you express yourself, that you figure out who you are, and then you, you be you, right? You do you. Live your life, express your desires, chase your dreams. And if you do that fully, if you do that successfully, if what's inside of you gets expressed outside of you, then that is a good life. If, on the other hand, that thing that's inside of you, you somehow suppress, you live it according to somebody else's rules or it never finds full expression, then that is an impoverished life. Steve Jobs, uh, the, the founder of Apple, who passed away a couple of years ago, he was both a brilliant businessman and designer, but he was also, he kind of became a spiritual guru for this age, right? People looked at him for his wisdom and his insight. He gave a graduation speech at Stanford University that, uh, that went viral. Uh, the YouTube clip was shared you know, constantly, hundreds of thousands of times around the world. And this is one of the things that Jobs said. He had, uh, he had just been diagnosed with, with uh, pancreatic cancer a cancer that would go on to claim his life years down the road. But he was talking about the way that it changed his life to realize that he was, he was mortal, to realize that he was going to die. This is what he wrote or said. He says, your time is limited, so don't waste it living someone else's life. Don't be trapped by dogma, which is living with the results of other people's thinking. Don't let the noise of others' opinions drown out your own inner voice, heart, and intuition. They somehow already know what you truly want to become, right? So here is advice. There's this thing in you that knows what you want to become, and you need to let that out, to let it go, right? And now this is, what does the Bible say about this? Well, it's actually, it's a little bit tricky, right? Because there's a lot that's good and that we would want to affirm in that, that God has made each one of us unique with very real gifts, very real uh, advantages and personalities and things that are to be cultivated and let loose. But each one of us also has darkness inside of us, right? Each one of us, I, I live daily with things in my own heart and life that if I just let it out unfettered and let it run my life, has the power to destroy me, right? Has the power to hurt those that I love most dearly. 
right? So we, we need wisdom, right, to navigate. What is it within me that needs to be cultivated and drawn out? And what is it in me that I need to be very, very wary of, right? There's a, there's a part of me that would rather hit the snooze button eight times a day leave hundreds of unanswered voicemails of people that are asking me to do stuff for them, right? There's a, there's a laziness in me that if I let just run my life is gonna lead to horrible things. It's gonna, you, you don't wanna be in a church pastored by that guy. You don't wanna be married to that guy. You don't wanna be that guy's children or friends, right? There's things in each of us that we don't need to just let go and, and let come to fruition. And so the proverb says, that wisdom is the skill of learning God's way, of learning that there is a, a grain of the universe. There's, a, there's a, a, sh, a, a shape and a scope of God's will expressed in his word and learned from living. Then we have to cultivate that skill. And the key to doing that uh, is this next word uh, that he gives us in Proverbs 2, to know wisdom and instruction. The word for instruction here is really the word correction. Right, that to be wise means that we have to let ourselves be corrected. That we have to have a posture of humility that says, you know what, I could be wrong. There's ideas that I hold, there's beliefs I hold dear, there's, there's habits that I've built that could be wrong, right, that I might have to be corrected in. And it's, it, it's really beautiful, actually. The word for correction here is a different Hebrew word than the word that's used for correcting animals, Right? There's a word that goes just for correcting livestock. You know, the, the reins that you pull on a horse that, or the, the whip that you snap on a, on a bull. Right? He says, this is, this is not that kind of wisdom. This isn't just discipline correction. This is the instructional wisdom that a loving parent does to a child. Right? That to live with wisdom means that you live open to a course correction. Gentle and loving, yes. But that you have enough humility to submit your way to God's way. You know, I had a, a, a counseling professor uh, when I was in that, uh, I have a degree in counseling, and, and my professor uh, at the time uh, had this great line. He said that, uh, that there's two types of people that we meet in the wisdom literature of the Bible. We'll see it over and over again in Proverbs. There's fools and the wise, right? There's foolish people and there's wise people. And the difference between those two paths, which we see as Proverbs 1 goes on, the author lays out that these basically become two trajectories of life, a path of foolishness and a path of wisdom. And foolishness says, my way is the best way. Right? The fool always says, my way is the best way. And the wise person says, God's way is the best way. God's way is the best way. Now, there's good news and bad news in this. The good news is that there's always the invitation for the fool to become wise. Right? There's always an invitation for the person whose foolishness has led them down destructive paths, for them to come to their senses, for them to open their ears and to hear wisdom. The bad side of this for all of us, the bad news, is that every one of us is born a fool. Every child comes into this world a natural-born fool. If you are a parent, this is the world that you live in. Right? I will never forget uh, my youngest son, when it came time for us to put him in his, it wasn't quite the big boy bed, it was crib. Uh, and it was crib with a lower mattress and a kind of a, a high bar. And we told him, Hart, don't climb out of this crib. 
He was, he was less than two, you know, so he could understand, but he could understand, he knew what you were saying. He said, heart, don't climb out. It's a long way down. It's like four of your body lengths down. And so we say goodnight, kiss him, say a prayer, uh, walk out, and I would guess that the door had been shut maybe three seconds before we heard thud and then an eruption of tears, right? Okay, I guess this is going to be one of those, right? This is uh, hard. I think, you know, this, this is going to be somebody who learns sometimes by falling. Um, and so you go in and you go, you know what? There is no, there's no shortcut around this. He's got to learn wisdom, right? You can't, just, you can't just put a lid on a crib. That's called a cage, and you can't do that. <laughs> Um, so, so you've got to, you've got to, you've got to teach them, uh, wisdom. You've got to teach them that if you do this, there will be consequences, right? God's world has something called gravity in it. And uh, if you defy it, it wins every time. And so there's a process in being a parent where you come along your child and you help to teach them wisdom, right? There's some of it is just going along and seeing what's good in them, what they, you just need to encourage and cultivate and draw out. But then there's other parts of it that goes, you know what, son? You need to learn to live your life within limits, within the limits of God's world and God's word. And so the process of growing towards maturity is growing from learning uh, the belief that my way is the right way, my way is the best way, to opening up and beginning to learn that God's way is the best way, that God's way is what's right. And we see that this way of living, this way of seeking after wisdom, is the only way of life that ultimately leads to flourishing. Wisdom is designed for flourishing. It's designed so that you'll live the fullest and richest and deepest experience of human life that you can have. And not just for yourself, but wisdom is also designed for your neighbor's flourishing, so that you'll treat them well, so that you'll love them well, so that you'll seek after what's best for them. Look at the way that Solomon expounds on what the results of wisdom are. So he says, verse 2, to, receive, to know wisdom and instruction, goes on in 3, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Listen, this is, this is the life that you want for yourself and for your neighbors, Right, this is the, the kind of thing that you hope if you're going into a business deal and you're sitting across a negotiating table, you're hoping that the person that you're sitting across from values things like righteousness, justice, and fairness. Right, you're wanting to deal with somebody who's gonna treat you fairly. They're not gonna try to take advantage of you. They're gonna treat you honestly. They're not gonna lie to you. They're gonna seek fairness and equity. Right, this is what we want for, for everybody. This is the kind of person that if you have children, you hope that they marry. This is the kind of person that if you're looking for friends that you hope that you befriend. These are the kind of people that you can trust, that, that are solid, that you can trust to, to do what's right, not only for themselves, but for you, for the community. Wisdom is good, uh, not only for ourselves, but good for society. Wise people uh, are to be the building block of society. Think of how different our world would be uh, if you could trust people to operate with this kind of wisdom, right? Imagine if the people that you did business with, the people that you shared a room with, the people that you did life with, if you could trust them to have this orientation to say, you know what, I could be wrong. I'm humble enough to admit that my ideas might be wrong. I might need correction, but I'm gonna learn wisdom and I'm gonna seek it. I'm gonna offer it, right? It would be a vastly different world, right? If you, if you turn on the television at any given moment, 
and you turn every, most of our whatever uh, whatever TV you have. Usually, there's that range of channels that that have the news. It kind of ranges from from Fox News to MSNBC down to the networks and all that. Usually, I think I've told you this before. When I'm watching the news, my children call it, "Are you watching two men yelling?" Right? Because that's often what it is. It's just, oh, I can't believe you would think that. I can't believe you would. Th-. Right? It's two people with their minds made up. Uh, just doing this to each other for 30 minutes, and then at the end they say, hey, it's been great being with you. Sign on next week. Uh, we'll do it again. Imagine how differently our posture would be to each other if we said, you know what? My, my ideas could be wrong, right? I could think things that I need to, to have corrected, and we're gonna try to learn wisdom together. We're gonna try to learn equity and justice and fairness together. It's a world so different than the one we inhabit, it's hard to imagine, um, but it is the way of wisdom. So if that's what wisdom offers, where is wisdom to be found? Where do we find wisdom to live our lives? Well, one of the the fundamental things that we see in Proverbs is that wisdom is found in the king, right? That wisdom is royal. Wisdom flows from the king, from the ruler, down towards all others. You see this in the very first verse, the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. Right, that we believe that, that King Solomon, David's son, was the author of much of the book of Proverbs. We think there's additions, there's other things that he, that he brought into it, but that he's the principal author of the book of Proverbs. And in this, Israel is not that different from most of its neighbors. It's very common in the ancient Near East, in the world that Israel lived, for kings to write down wisdom for their people. Right, we actually, it's, it's fascinating if you're into this kind of thing. Uh, we have uh, a book called The Wisdom of Ahimatep that's an Egyptian book of wisdom that has actually whole chapters that are basically the same stuff as Proverbs, which is, which is interesting. We'll talk a little bit about that. We have a book of Babylonian wisdom that has some very similar sounding things to what we find in Proverbs. That This was a genre of literature that the ancient world took seriously because it was their belief that a good society worked this way. You had a king or a ruler who, was, who sought after goodness and wisdom. And then he ran his country by passing on that goodness and wisdom down to the people. Right? The idea was that he wouldn't just rule through enforcement of the law. Right? He wouldn't just rule through punishment of wrongdoing, although there was certainly plenty of that. But that he would rule through passing down wisdom to his children and then beyond that to the people. And so that's what we see going on is Solomon seeks to write down wisdom and to pass it on. It's saying that, they're, that what they're after is a world that's rightly ordered, where you've got a king who's good and who's seeking wisdom and he's seeking to pass it on to others. Now, interestingly, uh, there is in this, in this uh, Israelite wisdom, it, in all of the other wisdom literature, it's directly addressed to the son of the king. Right, so it's the Egyptian pharaoh passing it down to his son, knowing that his son will one day be king. Or it's the Babylonian king passing it down to his son, knowing that he one day will be king. And then from there, it's like everybody else is kind of listening in and overhearing. They would pass it on to the schools where it would be taught. But Proverbs works differently. Solomon never names his son. He never names, hey, Rehoboam, my son, here's my wisdom. It's left anonymous. And instead of being given and passed down through schools, It's written to be passed on in in households from fathers and mothers to their children. So what we see is kind of a a democratization of wisdom, that it's not just passed on to the elites, 
It's not just passed on in schools of philosophy and wisdom, but that it's made to be handed down to everyday moms and dads who are trying to teach their children to grow in wisdom. And I think there's something really valuable to us in that fact, right? That in this world, and I'll speak for a moment to those of you who are parents, who have children in your house. I know that's not everybody in here, but it is some of us, right? The, the, the way that the scriptures point us in wisdom is that we can't sub out or subcontract the raising of our children in wisdom, right? We can't send them to the school at eight in the morning or whatever hour you send your kids and then bring them back at three and trust that the teachers and what they're getting at school is teaching them everything they need to know to live their life with Christian wisdom. And that's true whether or not you send your kids uh, to your local public school, whether you send them to a private school or a Christian school or homeschool, right? You, we don't have the option of sending out our kids and trusting that somebody else is gonna teach them wisdom. The path of, the, the, the biblical path for children growing in wisdom is to have mom and dad growing in wisdom. Mom and dad cultivating this spirit of, I need to learn from God. I need God's grace. I need his, his direction in my life. And then seeking in a life-on-life -life way. This isn't to say that you sit your kids down in front of a blackboard and draw out wisdom or that you have them memorize verse after verse, although there, there might be wisdom in, in, in Bible memory. But it's saying that as you let them live their life with you and as you live your life with them, that you're passing on the received wisdom of life with God. Received wisdom. It's the model for how it's passed on. And so uh, the, the design of Proverbs is that it's royal wisdom passed on through the family and the family of God, right? The extended family of the church. But uh, there is bad news as we think of this. That sounds great in theory, right? That, that a, a good and righteous king would be passing on good and righteous wisdom. But what happened to Solomon, if you're familiar with the story, is that Solomon ended up not being all that much different than the rest of the rulers of this world. Right, Solomon uh, ended up, uh, his life, though he, he asked God for wisdom and he was the wisest of Israel's kings, that he also became a bit of a fool, right? He accumulated tons of wealth at the expense of the poor. He, added, he, he accumulated for himself wives upon wives upon wives and concubines. He had himself a harem that started to bring in the beliefs of other gods into the, into the country, and then fundamentally, he failed at what he was asking other parents to do, which was to pass down wisdom to their children. His own son, Rehoboam, his own foolishness led to the division of Israel into two nations. Right, that Solomon, even the best king, even the wisest ruler, wasn't all that wise. Right, even his best intention, he couldn't even pass wisdom down to his own kids, let alone a nation of children. Right, the, the wisest parents, right, the wisest people aren't gonna, aren't gonna fully embody it and pass it down to our children, right? All of us live with this brokenness, this fundamental foolishness and lack of wisdom. You know, I, I think it's true that all of humanity, I think this is true not just in Israel, but across the board, that all of us are looking for a wise and good and just ruler, right? I think it dominates our political discussions to this day, and we're not gonna get that much into it. Right? But I think that the two times that, I, that, it's, that I've felt the most political angst in our world, and now I'm, I'm fairly, I'm younger, so I basically remember four presidencies. But the most angst I remember politically in our nation has come under two, two men of different political parties. 
right? There was, I remember the impeachment scandal of Bill Clinton, right? And all of the turmoil that surrounded that. And I, and I remember what we're go- dealing with right now. And so it's capable of happening under either political party. But it's the fundamental belief that we're just looking for some basic level of goodness and wisdom to rule, right? We're looking to, to someone in authority to trust that they have, that they're seeking some manner of morals and righteousness to live their life and to rule with some, a bit of wisdom, right? And America, certainly don't, America is not alone in this. It dominates every country on earth. That we're looking for a good and wise king, a wise ruler that we can trust has our best interest at heart and that we can look to for wisdom. And the scriptures tell us, uh, the sad story of Israel tells us that every time we look to a human ruler to give us that, we're disappointed, right? That Solomon, son of David, his life, even his wisdom points us to a true son of David who would lead and live with utter wisdom and utter goodness, right? That Solomon is just kind of a shadow that is meant to point us to Jesus. The apostle Paul tells us in uh, 1 Corinthians 1 that Jesus is the power and wisdom of God, right? That in Jesus, in the person of Jesus, is wrapped up all of God's power and all of God's wisdom. The wisdom that the wisest kings just kind of barely hinted at is seen fully in Jesus. And these two things are important, that he's both the power of God and the wisdom of God, right? He's not just wisdom. If Jesus was just wisdom, then he would just be a teacher. He'd just be someone that we learn good things from and then try to live in our lives. But no, he's the power of God and the wisdom of God that we see his power in the fact that he's powerful enough that in his love he died and that, that, that death was powerful enough to grant forgiveness for our sins, that he's powerful enough to bring healing to our lives, that he's powerful enough to cleanse all that's wrong in us, to set us straight and to set us right, that Jesus is powerful. But he's also wise. He's the wisdom of God. In him, we find the wisdom to know how to align our lives rightly under the true king, how to live our lives under his rule with wisdom and righteousness. One of my favorite stories in the Bible that shows this is in Luke chapter 8. Jesus finds himself confronted with a man whose life was completely out of control. Uh, He's often called the Gerasene demoniac. He was a man who was uh, living out in the wilderness, possessed by, uh, the scriptures tell us, possessed by many demons, right? The demons, when, when Jesus asks, what's your name? They say, we are many, we are legion. And Jesus is powerful enough to when no one else could, when no one else could heal the man, he casts the demons out. He sends them into a herd of pigs. The herd of pigs goes cascading into the, into the ocean, right? He is powerful enough when doctors and therapists and, uh, well, the, the ancient version of, uh, when all of the best thinking of humanity, could, could, the only thing they could think of was to send him out into a cave and chain him to a rock so he didn't hurt himself or others. Jesus was powerful enough to heal him. But then Luke goes on to say, when the people come back and they see him, they say that they found him clothed and dressed, sitting at his right mind at Jesus' feet, So what happens to him? Jesus is powerful enough to heal him, to forgive him, to set him right. And then he's found sitting at Jesus' feet, learning from him, learning his wisdom, learning how to live this new life that he's been granted in Jesus. And that is always the posture of what the gospel does in our lives. 
it's not our learning to live with wisdom that heals us, right? If you're here and you think that if you learn enough about how to live a good life, how to get on top of your choices, how to make enough good decisions, that that's somehow gonna give you forgiveness or right standing with God or a new life that you're after, it's not. But the power of Jesus through the cross gives you new life. It's powerful enough to recreate you, to give you a, a whole new life. And then he says, sit at my feet and learn how to live. Learn how to seek wisdom. Learn how to let me remake the way that you think about your life, the way that you think about your job and your family and your neighborhood, the way you think about your money, the way you think about your emotions. Let me teach you wisdom. Learn how to live with me. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I don't know where you need God's wisdom in your life. I mean, we need it everywhere. Proverbs 1 goes on. Wisdom cries aloud in the street. This is verse 20. She cries aloud in the street. In the market, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy street, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gate, she speaks. Right In every area of our lives, our home, our work, our church, our neighborhood, Jesus speaks wisdom. My prayer for us this summer is that we would have the humility to sit at his feet and to learn from him. To say, Jesus, I don't have everything figured out, and I need you to instruct me, I need you to guide me, I need you to help. Let's pray to that end.